Good morning. The reading this morning is taken from Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through to 8. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. So, here we are in week three of our series, Long Story Short. Uh, Today, as you've heard, we're thinking about Exodus, particularly from Exodus at chapter six. But before we get there, because quite a lot's happened since last week um, from uh, the early chapters of the book of Genesis, um, been through quite a a number of things. So just to to build a bridge between uh, last week and this week, So last week we went to Genesis 12 to see that God made a promise to Abraham that he and his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and that he would give them their own land, their own place to be. And he would become a great nation. So that promise or that covenant was made by God. And a covenant is only really important or relevant depending on who is making it. If I make a promise to you... Well, I might or I might not, you know. But when God makes a promise, he always keeps the promise. The problem was, of course, that Abram and his wife Sarah had no children, and Sarah was too old to have children, and it looked as if uh, nothing was ever going to happen. They had waited and waited, and eventually they decided they would help God out, uh, and uh, Abram had a child to somebody else. And that didn't work out very well. Then they had their son, Isaac. And uh, at 100 years old, this child is born to Abraham. And then the next thing we read was that God said to him, take your son and sacrifice him to me. That's, that's horrific. Uh, you know, I mean, that's awful. But Abraham did uh, what God had asked him to do. And God provided, actually, an alternative sacrifice for him so that he didn't have to go through with it. So, what we've seen in that uh, section is that God created, that was week one, and last week, God promised. Then Isaac goes on to have a family of his own. Uh, One of uh, his sons is called Jacob. Then Jacob has several sons, and his seventh one is uh, Joseph. And Joseph is his father's favorite. Consequently, He doesn't go on very well with his brothers. And if we're honest, he's a little bit arrogant. Do you know? And uh, 
Well, eventually they decide that he has to go. And they were going to kill him, but one brother says, no, 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 let's sell him. So they sell him uh, to some traders, and they go back and say to Dad, sorry, he's been killed. That's fine, except that Joseph isn't actually dead. He goes down uh, to Egypt. He's sold into slavery in Egypt, but through God's uh, mercy and grace, he ends up in the position of being second in charge of the whole country. Eventually, there's a famine in Canaan, which is where uh, the, the family are, and they decide that actually they should go to Egypt because there was food in Egypt. So Jacob sends the boys down, and there's this big, you know, if it was a film, there would be these moments of looking at each other, and then there's, there's this recognition, and, oh, it's Joseph, oh no, that kind of stuff, you know. All of that happens. Big, long story, cutting it really short. Joseph uh, says, okay, I forgive you, you did this, uh, you know, as, as an evil thing, but God did it for good. And here we are, and now I'm in a position to save you, bring everybody down, go and get dad and bring them all back. And so this, they came and they lived with Joseph in Egypt. And then at the end, or almost the very end uh, of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, it says this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So at the beginning of the book, you have this promise to Abraham, and here we are, all these generations on, that promise comes again, a reminder, God's going to do this. So in the opening of Genesis, we have the formation of creation. At the opening of Exodus, we have the formation of a nation. And not just any nation, but God's chosen people. Again, the problem is, when we come into the reading, there's been 400 years in between. So if you promise me something and I have to wait 400 years for it, I'm not going to be best pleased I might even have forgotten that you promised it, but they've had all this time to wait. And now they have grown into a nation in Egypt. And the Egyptians have suddenly thought, hang on a minute, if these guys decide to fight us, we've got a real problem. So we better do something about that. And so they enslave them and they make them work. Here now, though, we have Moses as the central figure. And he has this experience of meeting God. Uh, He saw this bush that seemed to be on fire, but it wasn't burning. And he went over and and God was there. And God spoke to him and God said, I want you to go uh, and and rescue uh, my people. So after 40 years in Egypt, uh, where he was born and brought up, and he was uh, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, so he knew all about the Egyptian uh, court, the Egyptian lifestyle. And then he uh, killed an Egyptian who was beaten an Israelite, and he had to run. So he spent 40 years uh, being a shepherd. And God says, I want you to go. And he went, no. I'm not good enough. I can't speak well enough. I don't know. What what, what will I say if they ask me a question? He gave all the excuses that we give. But then he went. So at this point in the story, Pharaoh 
the Israelite leaders, Moses, they've all pretty much had it with each other. Pharaoh's upset and he refuses to release the Israelites when Moses says, I've come and God says, you've got to let my people go. And he said, no, I'm not letting your people go. Pharaoh was told that he was God. So he knew. And apart from that, if he let them go, who was going to do the work? It was good for the economy to have the Israelites there. And then the elders are unhappy because Pharaoh makes them work harder. So Moses has come and things have just got worse instead of better. So Moses then is annoyed because he realizes that ever since he showed up in the scene, he's just made it worse. And he told God in the beginning he wasn't the right person for the job anyway. So what he said was right. And what does God know? That kind of thing. Frustrations begin to boil. Now, I think the reason they don't like God's plan is because there's too much disruption involved in it for all of them. There's too much uh, that God is, is taking them through to get them out of Egypt. Pharaoh obviously wanted to keep the people because it was good for the economy. Business is booming. So if Israelites leave, who's going who's gonna to do that job? The Israelites don't want to be oppressed, but at least they knew what to expect. It wasn't that bad, according to them. Now Moses is trying to find every excuse in the world not to take on the job. And at 80 years old, would rather be living anywhere but Egypt, dealing with all the hassle. And the one thing that you'll find about the Bible as you, as you read through it, and many of you know this already, is that God is really good at disturbing our comfort zones. And just in case you think that's a modern word, a modern term at least because it's too much, in 1908, the psychologists Robert Yerkes and John Dodson produced some research on the comfort zone. They explained that relative comfort produces steadiness. And within that steadiness that we call the comfort zone, our activities and our behaviors find a routine and that minimizes our stress and our risk, hence the comfort zone. And we like that because we need a certain level of predictability in our lives. We like to have things that we can control. But Yerkes and Dobson also said that there's a place just outside the comfort zone that is called optimal anxiety. Isn't that good? Optimal anxiety. And in that place, that's where our behavior changes and we shift outside of our normal routine. As you might guess, it produces slightly higher levels of anxiety and stress, but that optimal anxiety is the kind of anxiety and stress that, that we need to go and do something we've never done before, to learn a new thing, to take something new on, to accomplish something greater. In other words, the right kind of discomfort actually produces something good in our lives. Now, that's, I'm sure, not uh, something that you're totally unfamiliar uh, with. You know, if you've ever set goals to, you know, get fit or to lose weight or to do any of those things, then you've gone outside your comfort zone. You've had to change something. Uh, you've had to do something. If you've ever given up your job and gone to train for ministry, you get that as well. You get the point. You're doing something new. All of those things take us out of our comfort zone. And the truth is that if 
something or someone didn't push us or pull us out of that, we would never grow. We would never learn new things. We would never do anything different. Because if we're never exposed to change, you're never going to change. I think most of us are open to, to change. I mean, let's face it, we've gone through uh, two, two years of COVID when we had no option. It was just, here you are, now do it differently. And loads of people really struggled with that. We don't like it when we can't control the process of change. I know we kind of demonize the whole comfort zone thing as if, you know, we should never have a comfort zone. But actually we should. We need that. It's good for us to have that place where we rest and where we stop and we reflect and we recalibrate some of the things that we've been through. But if we stay in it all the time, it's not good for us. And so we have optimal anxiety. Just to take us that little bit even if you haven't heard that term, optimal anxiety, uh, you've probably heard no pain, no gain. Or to get where you want to go, you have to do what you've never done. You get the point. All that stuff and all those sayings are all good when we can control the terms or when we think we can actually deal with what has been given to us. But it's an entirely different story when we, when we don't understand what's happening, when we don't think we have any control, when we don't see where we're going, where we are uncertain of the future. That's an entirely different category altogether, because that's, that's no longer just a little bit of additional anxiety. That's right away up there. In this story, I think Pharaoh, the Israelites, and Moses think that some of God's terms or this process that they're going through is ridiculous. They don't get it. They don't understand it. You know, Pharaoh thinks it's going to absolutely ruin Egypt if they leave. And as it happens, it kind of did. More than he expected, I think. The Israelite people think the terms are ridiculous because if God's going to get them out, why is he sending Moses to make it worse? Why is Pharaoh getting more and more angry? I think Moses definitely feels like the terms are ridiculous because he says to God in chapter 5, verse 22, Really? This is what you sent me for. I'm paraphrasing. This is what you sent me here for. Are you stupid? What are you talking about, God? I just don't get it. And then chapter 6, verse 1. Basically, the translation of that is, now that I've got your attention, now that I've got your attention, here is what you need to remember. And he goes into this amazing promise, this reiteration of the covenant that he made with Abraham Isaac and Jacob, that they had forgotten about. And there are two parts to the promise. In the first four verses, he says, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I reveal myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But this side of me, you've never seen yet. You've not needed to see it yet, but here I am, and I'm going to do something absolutely amazing. I reaffirm my promise to them. I've not forgotten the terms of the agreement. I've not forgotten about you. And he goes on to say to Moses, tell them, I will free I will rescue, I will redeem, I will claim, I will be your God, I will bring, and I will give. Seven I will statements. For those of you who have read the New Testament, you might want to think of John's gospel when Jesus gives seven I am statements, because they kind of correlate there. It's a promise of deliverance. Now, the Israelites wanted to be delivered, but there's just one issue They've already waited 400 years and God doesn't tell them how long it's going to take. They're still having to wait. 
And in that gap of information with these unknown terms, I think we have the real issue. You see, we like the idea of losing weight, but we don't like the idea of having to give up food. We like the idea of getting fit, but we don't want to go all hot and sweaty and sore. We, we like the idea of writing a book, but we don't want to get up at five o'clock in the morning to actually have to write it. We love the idea of uniting congregations, but we don't like the idea of embracing difference. It's often the process that we have the problem with. We want the deliverance, we want the action, but we don't want to go through what it takes to get there. And that's the difficult bit. So I want to give you two benefits of the ways in which God goes about doing what he does. Last week I said God's promises always involve sacrifice. Always. Right now in the story that we've been reading, the Israelites are starting to feel the squeeze and they've only just begun. So much so that in the following verse, it says that they weren't even prepared to listen to Moses when he came with this word from God. They were so consumed with where they were and what was going on, they just weren't willing to even listen to him anymore. But they and we sometimes find ourselves in that place, that process that is difficult. But what I want to suggest is that actually what it should do is broaden our understanding and our perspective of God. Because that's what God had done in his promise to Moses, if they had just listened to him. He said, I want to show you a new side of me. He said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he had been El Shaddai. That means God Almighty. He says, but I didn't fully reveal my character and all that I am. When Moses said to them, when I go to these people and they say, who sent you? What am I going to say? And God just said, tell them, I am sent you. Because he is all that they needed. He had already shown that he could bring his people through. Because remember, they'd been in Egypt all these years because there had been famine. So he brought them to a place where they had food. He brought them to a place where they could grow in number without fear. He had built them into a nation of people of his own. And if he can bring them through that bit, he can bring them through this bit. I don't generally watch afternoon TV. But when I had COVID, I had a little time on my hands. And in between sleeping, I watched some programs about, you know, oh, there's a whole load, who knew? There's a whole load of different programs out there about people restoring furniture, right? You go to the tip, and you find something that somebody's just going to throw in the tip. And you think, oh, I'll take that. I can do something with that. And they take it away and they make money off it. And you think, wow, that's amazing. Me, I look at it and think, that's just, that should go in the tip. Right? I mean, the handles are falling off it and the doors, you know, and there's scratches. It's like, why would, why, would you, why would you want that? And somebody goes, no, no, I can do something with that. And they take it and they fix it. And sometimes these things are just freshened up. And sometimes they're turned into something entirely new and different. And I think there's a parallel in our reading. Because God has seen the oppression of his people, but he had a vision for them that is beyond where they are. He has a purpose for them beyond making bricks. He has a purpose beyond them being oppressed right now. And he wants to show them this new perspective. He says, I will free you. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you from here. And that's exactly what he does. And then from chapter 7 
chaos breaks out. There's blood in the water. The river and Nile turns to blood. There are frogs and gnats and flies and boils breaking out in people. There's hail and locusts. There's darkness and the death of the firstborn son. Imagine being there and, and, and watching that. But do you know what it says? That didn't happen to God's people. God showing them what he can rescue them from. Sometimes we, we just need to have some awareness to see that although there's loads of stuff going on round about us, it's not affecting us like it's affecting other people. We have stuff breaking out around us, but we are not overcome. There are things that are happening, but we still have peace in the midst of it. We might feel that we are on this job, but it's holding us hostage, but at least we have a job. Sometimes that's the blessing in itself. Sometimes we need to realize that God is doing what he's doing, not only to show you who he is, but to show the people around you who he is. Because he, Moses says to Pharaoh in chapter 9, these plagues are sent to show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God shows this man who thinks he is God that actually he is not God. He's not only working on behalf of the Israelites, he's also revealing himself to the opposition. In relation to this process of revealing, there's nothing that reveals your character more than when you have to go through hard times. So what God's trying to do here is he's trying to reveal himself to his people because he wants them to understand how amazing, how awesome he is that they can trust him for what's coming in the future. In fact, I think the Bible from beginning to end is a story of God revealing himself to people. Sometimes we just wish he might be a, uh, a little less dramatic with it. And then I think when we find ourselves in that place going through this process, it gives us a new point of reference for the future. Sometimes the stress and the strain of the process doesn't allow us to think about what is coming. But God knows where we're going and what we need when we get there. I read a, a story from a, a, another minister recently, and it says this. I remember back in 2014, I led a missions team to Nigeria, a lot of persecution uh, in Nigeria, especially for those who profess to be Christians. Uh, we met a woman, a fascinating woman, who came to faith in Christ through a vision. Uh, as a result of her conversion, her husband found out about it, and he beat her, and he took her to court, and she was charged with burning the Quran, which she hadn't done. Her two daughters were taken from her, and her husband wrote a divorce letter, and she was jailed for seven months. Later, God told her the reason he had allowed this to happen was so that she could become a mother to those who had been persecuted. And so she had started searching for children who had been abandoned and orphaned or whose parents had been killed because of their faith. And people started bringing children to her. And then God gave her some land and she was able to open a compound and put different buildings on the compound so that she could help to heal the children and she could help to educate them. But his favorite part of the story was this. We were walking around the compound. She was explaining what everything was. And there was a little area over to the right that had chicken wire around it. And I asked her what it was and she said they, were, they had built the area so that uh, they could house all the chickens and the ducks. And we set up this structure because we believe that God is going to provide us with the chickens and the ducks. We just wanted to be ready for when they came. 
See, this woman had a point of reference and deliverance about what God could provide because she understood what he had done in the past. Sometimes the struggles that we go through are not for us, but they are for other people coming behind us. The best people to help you to overcome in your struggles are people who have been through them already. God knew there were going to be giants in the land that they were going to. God knew there were going to be cities to be defeated. God knew there were, there were armies to be fought. God knew what was coming, and so he was trying to prepare them for what was coming. So delivering his people from a dictatorship would be a point of reference for them that nothing they would face in the future, no enemy would be too hard for God to defeat. Manna and quail as they went through in the desert was a point of reference that reminded them that God would provide everything they needed. And it may be that someone here or someone watching online is facing a difficult situation and the message for you today is don't give up. Don't give up. There's a purpose for this particular process because God knows where he is trying to take you. What things has God brought you through in the past that you need to reference now in this season that you're in? What has he done for you before? What door has he opened that you need to look back and say, if God did that then what will he do now? Eventually, Pharaoh had to let the children go. They had this miraculous escape, and then they get to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea's in front of them, and Pharaoh's changed his mind, and the army's coming behind them, and they say, oh no, what are we going to do? And God does another miracle. He gets them through the sea on dry land. But although they had experienced that deliverance, the truth is they never really accepted him in their heart. They spent 40, year, 40 years moaning and complaining They just didn't remember the things that God had done for them. And so they never fully experienced his promises. Some of them actually said, we wish we could go back. Maybe you're here today and you need an exodus. Or you're in a tight place and you, you need to trust God. Maybe you've been kind of going backwards and forwards, one day saying yes to God and the next day saying no Maybe you've just not been really sure. But here's the good thing. God has already made a choice. And you're it. He chooses to love you. He chooses to forgive you. He wants to, to know you and for you to know him. When the people were still in Egypt... He got them one night to make a sacrifice, to take some blood from the sacrifice and to, to put it on the doors of their homes. And death came to Egypt that night. And they were protected. The ones that put the blood on their doors were protected. It's called the Passover. And when we get into the New Testament, we see that Jesus is called the Passover lamb. Because through faith in him, we are protected. Through faith in him, we are forgiven. Through faith in him, we have 
the fulfillment of these promises that were made all these years ago. And so his call to us today is to trust him and to follow him into the unknown, to whatever's to come. But we know, because we've got all of these stories of what he's done in the past, we know that he's good. We know that he does miracles. We know that he can save us. We know that he can protect us. And so we need to trust him as we move forward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for how much you love us, and we thank you that you pursue us. Some of us here tonight might be in a difficult place. Some of us might be looking for our own exodus out of that place. Some of us may be, you know, shifting backwards and forwards in our relationship with you. So would you help us to build our life on you as the true and firm foundation? Help us not to give it and take it back, to stand squarely on your promises. Yes, we know that it might involve some sacrifice, and we know that it will certainly not save us from difficult times. But you said you would never leave us and you'd never forsake us. You sent Jesus, your son, to take our guilt and our sin, to bear our burdens and to give us new life and life in all its fullness. So we thank you for him. We thank you for his sacrifice. And Father, we pray that if there is somebody listening to this who doesn't know him yet, would you reveal yourself to them? that they would be able to stand firm in Jesus' name. Amen.